Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs. And I'm Cody Sims. And welcome to My Climate Journey. This show is a growing body of knowledge focused on climate change and potential solutions. In this podcast, we traverse disciplines, industries, and opinions to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and all the ways people like you and I can help. We appreciate you tuning in, sharing this episode, and if you feel like it, leaving us a review to help more people find out about us so they can figure out where they fit in addressing the problem of climate change. Today's guest is Martine Weinstein, founder and executive director of Open Earth Foundation, which is a California-based nonprofit that creates and supports the deployment of open source software at the intergovernmental level to further climate understanding and action. When we think of blockchain, our brains are now tuned to think of cryptocurrencies and for-profit schemes. Open Earth Foundation, however, is applying blockchain principles to United Nations-scale carbon accounting efforts to aid in the understanding of and deployment of software that can support an open and accountable data layer for critical carbon accounting data. As carbon offsets are bought and retired, as renewable energy credits are traded, and as compliance and voluntary carbon markets grow in prominence, how do we ensure that these systems can understand each other across borders, governments, and methodologies? After all, a ton of CO2 should be a ton of CO2. And yet, orchestrating agreement and dialogue across major stakeholders, including governments, markets, and corporations, is never an easy task. Martin and I have a great conversation about his own journey into the climate space and the origins of Open Earth Foundation, which was inspired in part by his time at Yale Open Lab and his work on digital currencies at MIT Media Lab. We also cover the state of carbon accounting at the nation-state level today, the innovative ways that Open Earth Foundation has raised money to date, and some of the big ideas that they're thinking about for the future. It's heartening to me that a group like Open Earth Foundation exists, one that's pushing forward-thinking open technology innovation into the biggest stages of world government in the name of climate action. I hope you enjoy what Martine has to say. Martine, welcome to the show. So good to be here, Cody. Finally make it. I'm so thrilled to have you on here. You know, you and I have gotten to know each other, uh, I guess, virtually now for, for many years, though, though we haven't, even though we both live in L.A., Los Angeles, we've never met in person. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I had you back when I was at Techstars, had you come and present uh, to a large audience at Techstars all about carbon accounting and just had so such glowing reviews of your remarks um, because you think about it from such a different perspective than most people do. Um, that uh, you've you've been someone long on my list to bring on the show, so I'm glad we're finally making it happen. It's an honor to be here. Yeah. <laughs> well, why don't we start uh, before we dive into open earth and carbon accounting and all you know all the topics I know we're going to dive into. Uh, let's hear about you. How did this become an area that you wanted to focus on? And by this, I mean climate and collaboration globally around understanding what's happening to our Earth. Yeah, and obviously inspired by the title, right? What is my climate journey and how it might resonate with with others? And for me, it's it's been a lifelong process. Um, I was born in Buenos Aires in Argentina. And right after high school, I, there was all kinds of things that I wanted to do. But I moved to the U.S because college allowed large flexibility of, of things. And I had I took a class that changed my life that was astrobiology. And astrobiology helped me see the planet as a four and a half billion year organism, uh, as a living organism. And, and two things that mark me until this day, that 
looking at things from these large cycles is so important and it gets you to see um, such a different perspective of it took three and a half billion years to have the oxygen levels that we have today and the CO2 levels that we have today. Um, and so it also highlights how fast in the last 60 years things have changed. And to me, that was all, was was shocking. And the other thing is the scales from micro to macro. So um, a big part of astrobiology, looking at life in other planets, is about microbiology, right? Small bacteria that can seed a planet and microbes in this planet affected the entire chemistry. So without knowing, that was my entry point into systems thinking from a holistic standpoint and to Earth as a living organism. So for me, the, the, the entry into climate was sitting in this class and realizing, doing some back-of-the-envelope calculations and saying, oh my God, it is our generation that is having to face reversing this deep trend towards eroding billions of years of pristine uh, environment in a short time period. And I said to myself, this is a fascinating time to be alive in the history of this planet. And I want to be part of it. <laughs> so that, that, that got me into, okay, what are some renewable energies things that I can do from the biology space? Um, and then that took me into microbial fuel cells. And then suddenly I was in a lab looking at how microbes could produce electricity and clean energy and clean water. But it wasn't sort of scalable that I got more and more into it. And I realized, well, the problem here is not technological. It doesn't seem to be economical because what's the, the, the cost of, ero- of, of destroying the planet is way more than the, the mobilizing capital to fix it. And without having any strong vision of political economy, I came up with my own explanation of a social enterprise. And so I had, we decided to go back to Argentina to start my first social enterprise. And discovered myself in some sense as an entrepreneur um, and for around six years. So that was the first, the first kind of changing point for me was that astrobiological perspective. The second in substance was, oh, social enterprises can be a very important way for me to express my, my interest in the topic. And in Argentina, there was all kinds of things that I started doing from measuring carbon footprint of, of companies Back in 2007, uh, and then using some profits of that to put into deploying solar kitchens in the border between Argentina and Bolivia, or working on on forest conservation in the border with Brazil. But at the same time, like I realized that I was always thinking about big ideas that were too ambitious for what the reality of of consulting or or a small startup in Argentina. And then that was the, the second, I think, pivotal point where. I decided to do a PhD and think about how to innovate the business space and the um, and the climate space together. I moved to Australia and I yeah I focused on the transformation of the global energy business system. We often think about oil and gas companies as like the usual suspects, right? What we're facing is the fact that they have to cannibalize their core business model, radically change that, and so I went deep into what that what that entails, and also about how innovative projects could change the paradigm of the energy business. And so I focused on peer-to-peer smart grids and, and, and new business models for that. So the long, the long story short is that got me into the digital space. As you know, a lot of my work today is on open digital systems, uh, but it really started by thinking about what is, what is something in the innovation space that could change radically. And, and the peer-to-peer space took me into Web3 
And Web3, at that time, it was very apparent out of my PhD that I was a little bit too much of an entrepreneur to, to be a traditional academic and too much of a sort of big picture thinker to be a mainstream entrepreneur. So um, I moved back to the US and I was fortunate enough to be able to set up the Open Innovation Lab at Yale University and the solar energy uh, project at the MIT Media Lab's Digital Currency Initiative. And that's how I got into carbon accounting because um, I had a lot of colleagues throughout my PhD period that were looking at the carbon budget and measuring the carbon budget. So the remaining physical space in our atmosphere where after you put so much greenhouse gases, you cross the tipping point for 1.5 degrees. And, and then looking at blockchain as an accounting system. And so it was like, well, the ultimate ledger that we have is the atmosphere. How are we going to manage this, this atmospheric accounting uh, in this sort of ticking clock of the budget? And so out of Yale, we presented a lot of these ideas at, at COP25 in Madrid. And then I learned that the UN climate change um, had a lot of gaps in their not just emerging tech, but just digitization and managing the Paris Agreement. And and then in 2020 is how I decided to launch Open Earth. Amazing. Uh, thank you for walking us through, uh, you know, sort of how these disparate experiences, uh, you know, brought you to where you are today. And so you went through all of these uh, experiences and you have now built and are running the Open Earth Foundation. What is the Open Earth Foundation? Part of the model that I was, in some sense, researching while I was at the at the Yale Open Lab was how do we use like big picture system thinking, particularly Earth systems analysis, to programmatically come up with entrepreneurial projects that are designed to hit leverage points. And I know that sounds a little bit esoteric, but but it's sort of like in my own explanation of. What are some critical projects that are not decided by what are market opportunities, uh, but but an action that can that can have a huge impact? And so, um, I often describe that we look for those in the intersection of emerging technologies um, because um, I feel that they can bring in capabilities that obviously augment humans' capabilities to deal with such a, a large large system like like planet Earth. But then the other part is open source and, and the role of open digital infrastructure, open standards, open protocols, um, and more than anything, the collaboration needed to create that. Um, and then all of those two aspects to Earth system thinking. Um, uh, you know, even, even just note there that um, I think a good example f- from you that I take away from what you just said was how you think about blockchain and Web3, which is to say we're obviously living in a time in 2023 when the the broader blockchain space i think is navigating the corruptive nature of capitalism in many cases mm-hmm. to take something mm-hmm. and uh encourage actors to exploit it for capitalistic purposes uh, to as as <laughs> to the end right. of the end of days as much as possible sadly um and yet i feel like from the beginning every conversation i've had with you about blockchain is is less around, you know, oh, there's this great business idea I have. Or like, <laughs> oh, I, I know how we're going to make all this money selling tokens. It has nothing to do with that. And it's more thinking about it as kind of the next evolution of open source and of, you know, sort of uh, almost common good collaboration from a technology perspective. Um, is that the right way for me to 
think about how you're thinking about uh, leveraging technology generally, regardless of blockchain? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and a mechanism where we, we agree on, on a core source of, of truth or of state, what's the state of the planet? What's the state of the atmosphere? Um, what's, uh, what's the health of nature? What's the, the status of that? Uh, and how do we build systems that are designed to maintain that, to augment that? And so records can help and records that don't require a level of, of trust, but also, again, how sensors and AI and models all play a role in trying to attest to that uh, is critical, which is whilst we started looking at the carbon budget, immediately it started into monitoring reporting and verification systems in the, in the market spaces um and and more just as a common record keeping system the reality of course is back in the day was okay let's address double counting but blockchains don't address double counting only if the whole system is within one blockchain but now when you have 50 blockchains right so what i'm hearing you say is open earth foundation essentially exists to leverage technology leveraging technology as a public good to solve large-scale collaboration problems, um, yes. particularly as it relates to the earth and to climate change. Yes, and, and hopefully also leveraging collaboration <laughs> so that technology can play a role in scaling broader collaboration, because it does require certain levels of collaboration to create those systems. And I'm inspired by the phrase from Buck Bitzer Fuller on the operating system for Spaceship Earth or operating manual for Spaceship Earth. So for me, one of the missions of Open Earth is like, how do we design the operating system? So the, the, the digital mesh that, uh, that helps us manage um, something that's greater than all of us. But in the process of doing so, and this is maybe an, a holistic view to that, that it helps us realize that that which we're managing is also what we are. So a big, big part of the division that we have as, as a core issue in our environmental problems is this illusion that we're separated from nature, that we're separate from Earth. And so we have to save Earth or help Earth and realize that we are Earth and, and we're part of it. So how does that also play in how we design the systems to, to, from that mindset? From a, from a theory of change perspective, what incentives are there for people to leverage technology for the common good? Um, you know, a, a, a cynical capitalist may say people are just going to leverage technologies for their own exploitative practices. Um, how are you seeing that not be true? Hmm. I mean, I think one one key example is uh, the Internet is the, the best example of a digital public good we have. It's not totally neutral and it's not totally decentralized and um, and it's in some sense been co-opted by, by a lot of private interest. But it's a networking layer that helps transact value and information and things like that. So we we kind of need the Earth Internet or make the Internet help us, help us um, manage Earth in, 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 a, in a good way. So when we think about a climate accounting system, we think about like a climate Internet where just like in the internet, you search for something and it will hit any public uh, website that's using HTML and will retrieve information and all of that will happen in, in seconds. So if we are to say, I want to know of all the climate mitigation projects within 100 miles of where I'm at to, today, um, we don't have a protocol for that because obviously you can't pull it from one database. Otherwise, it, will just it would just be a very simple query. 
And so th- th- those are some of the things that we think about, like protocols and standards that could help a lot of the climate information talk to each other and, and discoverability. And and then the other part, which uh, for me, Web3 was interesting, is power automation. So um, the first sort of thought experiment, and it's interesting because we're a little bit closer to, to doing that, um, is, you know, a, a big discussion in the policy space is carbon pricing. But carbon pricing is often uh, derived using the social cost of carbon, and there's some subjective roles around that. Uh, and none of those models look at the remaining carbon budget. At the moment, our remaining carbon budget is around 260 gigatons, and we put out 50 gigatons a year. So it doesn't take much to think about within the next six, seven years, we could irreversibly cross our 1.5 degrees. Um, that, that equation needs to be part of how we price carbon. Our emissions different, and I must always clarify how we price a carbon credit. That that's there's different equations that go into how we price a carbon credit. How we price our emissions, our liability, and our our impact. Um, and so for that, you kind of have to have sources of truth to say, well, here's here's the remaining carbon budget, and here's how we're going to price it, and here's how, uh, um, for example, a government or in our model, we could perfectly see an Earth taxation system where you pay carbon price to Earth. Uh, so it goes to a fund, and it, from there it trickles into projects that have the right quality to to do it. So, rather than lobbying for your government to to roll out carbon price, you can just say we'll do that with Earth. <laughs> so let's let's dive into that carbon accounting because obviously, in order to you know understand what our annual sort of gigaton output is as a society today, um, that presumes some degree of accurate accounting on uh, a carbon. Uh, level. uh, But I don't know where that begins. Does that begin at the nation state level? Does that begin at an individual corporation? From what I know, corporations who are the ones outputting the bulk of these emissions, most of them have no idea what their carbon footprint is today. They, They maybe are starting to get their arms around, you know, their scope one and scope two emissions, meaning the emissions of their operations and the emissions of their, their own power use. Um, though many of them don't, uh, feels like almost none of them have their arms around their own scope three emissions, which is the emissions of their supply chain. Um, But that's just at an individual corporate level, and that spans global geographies. So when we talk about the amount of gigaton output happening on Earth per year, is that a roll-up of nation-state level emissions? Is that a roll-up of corporate-level emissions? And where in the world does that data actually come from today? Great point, and so timely because um, we're in 2023, and this is the first year where the Paris Agreement is conducting its first global stock take. That will happen in COP28 in Dubai this year, and that's sort of the exercise where we have to come together and say, "What did you say you were going to do? What did you do, and now what should you do?" Right, a massive accountability um, exercise. So, for me, the way that I describe where this starts in the high-level policy. The Paris Agreement, uh, the UN climate change requires countries to submit their greenhouse gas inventories. And they follow a methodology through IPCC, normally happens through sectorial data aggregation. Energy sector, what are your emissions? Uh, Agricultural sector, what are your emissions? And residential sector, et cetera, and so forth. And and those are put together. And out of those, we calculate roughly what what are those total emissions. So we spent a lot of time trying to think about alternative complementary ways of doing that. And then at the same time, how do you cross-reference those same numbers by just looking at um, 
and what are the traces that we see in the atmosphere. So using more direct measurement, it's very hard because you also have to factor in all the natural carbon cycle. Um, but we hope that more and more we we would be able to advance to to actually do a double entry bookkeeping system. This is what the world is saying, and this is what we actually see. But um, that's one way. Um, the way that we've been focusing a lot and um, actually got a lot of progress in, in the last couple of years is what we talk about nested climate accounting. And it's because if you look at those sectors, energy or agriculture, um, the creation of policies, it derives a lot of insight, but to create policies for the energy sector, um, you have a ministerial uh, department, and but it might not necessarily go directly to the organizations. Nested accounting starts by the site and the building and who owns the building or owns that site. Okay, an organization, that organization sits within the purview of a municipality, which is inside a city, which is inside a subnational government, which is inside a, um, well, different levels of subnational government inside a national government inside Earth. So if we're able to do things by spatially aligning and, and understanding that nested jurisdiction, whoever you are, wherever you are, uh, you end up in that in that sort of stock taking exercise, and we've pushed that forward enough um, that it's now been incorporated as an architecture to consider for what's called Article Six Point Four, which is more around how do you deal with markets as credits move from one place to the other by being able to say if you are buying voluntary carbon credits in Brazil, well, technically that should roll up to the Brazilian. Uh, uh, greenhouse gas inventory and the progress towards their nationally determined contribution. If you want to use them in, in your where your emissions happen, let's say in California, well, Brazil and United States would have to agree that that something is negative here and something's positive there or the other way around. And so that requires that level of, of, of let's say, geotagging. So the, so yeah. the challenge I'm hearing is less, you know, understanding what the the total output is. And it's more about managing at a level below or two levels below that how the the horse trading happens right like who who's taking responsibility for what um in, in order to create accountability um is that what i'm hearing yes and a way to connect like even though you mentioned like a lot of corporations don't know what their carbon footprint is but there's a lot of movement in that and we've seen in the last couple of years so many uh new startups that are working on greenhouse gas accountant accountancy um, and they they provide the company with a number, and maybe there's not a lot, but will allow a audit firm to come in and st stamp it, which they used to do that before already. Uh, but where does that end up, right? So, well, they could maybe use it for the SGE reports, and now we're going to have more regulatory requirements. But how do we track trace that into the greenhouse gas inventory that plays under the Paris Agreement? That's one of the big things that we focus on. And then, of course, the third method, which is uh, nascent now, but we think very powerful in the future is through satellite and machine learning models and, and integrated assessment models so that you could, by what you observe, uh, determine this is what your emissions are. And we work closely with an organization called Climate Trace that works closely on that. And these are all complementary. We, we, we need to be able to have a level of redundancy because the more insight we have on this, the better policy and finance can, can track that. A good example, and, and um, large banks sort of often pose this problem to us, if I am lending a country a billion dollars for climate action, 
how do I follow the dollar into the greenhouse gas inventory that gets reported to the secretariat? It's not that easy. Um, and so we think about what would it take to do that? And of course, all of that needs to be open architecture, run through open standards and and public and neutral. And that's that's why we're a 501c3. And let's talk about what that looks like in terms of, of how you do that. You mentioned earlier on one of the challenges with you know, yes, blockchain helps with double counting, but that's only if everybody's on the same blockchain. Uh, so I, I would presume then Open Earth is not trying to say, hey, you know, everyone in the world, like you use this one tech stack because uh, that doesn't seem like that would work. Right. Um, but instead, you're having to basically build some big integration layer, like data, um, data input and integration layer. Um, or is it like, I don't know, I'm making stuff up now. What, what is it? What does it look like? <laughs> um, well, that, that's that's part of the challenge, right? Um, right now, we, in last COP, published uh, openclimate.network. It's a nested accounting system, so you can, you can navigate through information that often is disparate, like country information and subnational government, and, um, and it's connected with a federated uh, uh, data commons, um, so that... That's just one database and it's connected to other databases and you can pull information from different sources. I think the next challenge for us is going more at the protocol level um, where all these things would combine. And obviously, one of the challenges that we have as as a nonprofit is as soon as you go very deep into the technical architecture, it requires mobilizing a lot of bandwidth, a lot of capital and a lot of talent into these major challenges. You see that a lot of the startups in this space that are well endowed are focusing on their product, but not on some of these underlying protocols. Some countries don't understand the importance of this. So we're always in the challenge of driving little projects as possible to seeing what that would look like and opportunities where we can advance on that. There's some low-hanging fruits that that we're currently working on that are very helpful for, for the process of the global stock take. For example, the way that countries actually submit their progress reports to their NDCs, their nationally determined contribution, is through PDFs. And they just sit in the secretariat in the UN climate change um, cloud. So now there's 500 documents sitting there, but you don't, you can't search like what are the best uh, practices in terms of climate action or climate adaptation in West Africa, um, and that it would pull and read from those documents. So those are just some pretty standard digital tools that we can leverage um, and that we're working with the secretariat on, on helping that so that already the information that's been submitted in PDFs is better accessible to the public, better accessible for insights to, to policy. And so that's one aspect that eventually open climate can then pull in, bring insights and work closely with UN um, to, um, yeah, to provide be- better clarity for better policy, better, better financial mechanisms. And uh, and ultimately, a lot of uh, digital infrastructure standard working groups that were part of um, W3C, ISOs, and we have a Climate Action Data 2.0 community where we discuss some of these things. And we often see that we need, um, there's no way to have one standard to rule them all um, and or a data model. Uh, so you kind of have to have resolvers, like something that says, oh, well, you presented in this format, um, that's equivalent to this other format, and here's how you translate it. And so those are like digital public engines that, that are running and solving for these things, taxonomies, solving for taxonomies and things like that. 
We're going to take a short break right now so our partner Yin can share more about the MCJ membership option. Hey folks, Yin here, a partner at MCJ Collective. Want to take a quick minute to tell you about our MCJ membership community, which was born out of a collective thirst for peer-to-peer learning and doing that goes beyond just listening to the podcast. We started in 2019 and have since then grown to 2,000 members globally. Each week, we're inspired by people who join with differing backgrounds and perspectives. And while those perspectives are different, what we all share in common is a deep curiosity to learn and bias to action around ways to accelerate solutions to climate change. Some awesome initiatives have come out of the community. A number of founding teams have met, nonprofits have been established, a bunch of hiring has been done, many early stage investments have been made, as well as ongoing events and programming like monthly women in climate meetups, idea jam sessions for early stage founders, climate book club, art workshops, and more. So whether you've been in climate for a while or just embarking on your journey, having a community to support you is important. If you want to learn more, head over to mcjcollective.com and click on the Members tab at the top. Thanks, and enjoy the rest of the show. All right, back to the show. So what I'm hearing is, you know, most of the dialogue around blockchain and climate, you know, it it centers around the carbon markets and centers around actually moving carbon credits on chain to be transacted, to actually manage the the offsets themselves in some way, shape or form through a digital mechanism. Um, I'm hearing from you, you know, that that's fine. That can all happen. But the the layer that isn't being built or that we're the ones helping to define at Open Earth Foundation is really the um, the record keeping layer of just and a transparent view into what's happening broadly across all of this, regardless of whether, you know, the, the transactions themselves are being managed on the blockchain or not. Is yeah. that is that a correct way to think about it? Yeah. And and one way that we also frame it, uh, building from that is there's three sectors that need to be integrated for, for a better stock taking process. One is, of course, the national and subnational level. And we've aggregated a lot of the data for that. The other one is the corporate sector you mentioned. Uh, very important as Every almost like ERP or client provider is coming with their own carbon accounting, plus the startups, um, plus the regulatory environment moving forward. And then the third is the climate market. So national, subnational, corporate, and then markets. And then most of what we know in the refi or DeFi meets uh, Web3, DeFi meets uh, carbon is a subsection of that climate market space. But there's there's a lot of opportunities. Like we are uh, launching, uh, we announced in Davos and launching, I think in April, a carbon pricing oracle. So we tell you um, the result of integrative assessment models that calculate the social cost of carbon, and you can determine your discount rate because there are some subjectivities uh, to it. And um, you could take that as an oracle and input it to a smart contract. So uh, you could say, well, one one thing I can do is my buy my voluntary carbon credits out of Vera or directly from Pachama or whoever it is your provider or region, or you could say this is my this is the impact of my emissions, and my carbon pricing says this, and dynamically I will um, it will already execute that that contract, for example. Um, so we try to do little innovations in in those three sectors in the corporate side around bringing the carbon the, the corporate carbon footprint calculators to have a common reporting or common integration layer and then of course with the national subnational is helping in that intersection between countries and the and the secretariat how much of the that on, on that last piece the national and subnational level how much of it is just purely helping the UN 
modernize itself to being a digital friendly data organization? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's one of our one of our quests. And I often describe Open Earth as a bridge organization between the tech space broadly uh, and the supranational. So we collaborate very closely with the World Bank on their climate market infrastructure, and we have a, we're a partner of UN Climate Change. You, uh, from where our vantage point, you see amazing gaps um, where obviously UN systems don't have UN agencies don't have like a full team of IT with cutting edge um, capabilities that are constantly upgrading the systems. The countries that are supporting the UN are often hesitant to fund technology. Um, they often partner with tech companies, but they send a lot of marketing people, so not their solution architects. Um, and and traditional climate NGOs uh, also uh, happen to not 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 have in-house uh, engineering teams and philanthropies uh, also not their strength. So we found that gap, and we're like, wow, we need to do something different. We need to be a climate NGO that has a full tech team. So we've got like a full engineering team, and we're just going in and trying to uh, so fix fix bugs, like, put pipes together, and be a bit of like digital plumbers. Uh, where where that happens by knowing how to collaborate in a very non-threatening and neutral way, um, and and fundamentally explaining, like out of COP, we we came up with an idea of of helping philanthropies increase their capability of digital literacy and how important funding open digital infrastructure is because they often tend to think, well, the big tech firms should fund that. Well, they often don't because there's there's also a gap for them and 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 they don't want to necessarily directly fund uh, open layer where their competitors also might have a benefit even though the reality is they all, all benefit from that so yeah i think that that's a, that's been a, a bit of a role and um and when we started it was really hard to try to get this uh, supported because you know when we when we lead with blockchain and ai you can imagine that a lot of the traditional funders of of climate ngos think we're speaking gibberish um and it's it's hard for them to sort of take risks on on something that's very emerging um and um funding digital modernization for the un is also something that philanthropies would say the government should fund that and the government say the philanthropy should fund that and so then the un is like well someone's got to fund this i'm going to come back to how you got funded because you, you have an, an amazing story there but before we do that one other question just on collaborating with you know, big organizations like the UN, um, you know, in the smaller corner of the carbon markets, we've seen uh, Vera, for example, recently actually issue, uh, you know, a request for for basically an RFP, a request for proposal of how they should think about digitizing that I know, you know, folks like Toucan and Flow Carbon and others have replied to and are kind of giving them guidance on how to think about that. Um, to me, that, that feels like a matter of, of, um, of when, not if it's going to happen. It's just going to take some time to work through the details. Um, for the UN, are they issuing RFPs? Like, how are you in there helping them figure out what they should spend their time on and where, as an example? Yeah, it's a it's a good point. And um, I mean, the Web3 space has also, it's a really nice community. There's a lot, there's levels of fragmentation as there is everywhere, but um I was participating in a lot of these uh, consultation rounds that then led up to a newly launched blockchain climate leadership network 
um, where a lot of these participants and Vera has been open to feedback and where they should go. Um, so it's been really nice to see that dynamic uh, dialogue happen. Of course, we know a lot of the issues with the Guardian article and going back and forth, but it, it goes to show the importance of what we talk about is we think about uh, the importance of integrity and MRV, modern reporting and verification of the climate markets, but we have to think about MRV broadly than markets. So how do you MRV your greenhouse gas inventory and so many other things? Um, and so we, we, we think about national or an international MRV systems. Uh, back to the UN, um, they don't directly do that um, unless um, that I'm aware, unless um, there's a specific funder involved that's, that's supporting them in the program. And the recent activity of that is in the um, mid last year, in lead up to what are called the intercessionals to the, to the COP, uh, Bloomberg and Macron announced uh, a project towards what France called the Open Planet Data Hub, and that created the Climate Data Steering Committee. The Climate Data Steering Committee just issued an RFP for building the net zero data public utility that would eventually integrate with the Global Climate Action Portal of UNFCCC. That's a mouthful, but that just shows also the institutional cascades that need to happen for that. Um, at Open Earth, we happen to be very active. This is taking a lot of my my time, but it's 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 really a lot of the the role that we have of of com- of convening open source community and open source efforts for responding to that RFP, including the for profit companies that to participate to ensure that we bring a lot of the thought leadership and knowledge that we have around this on responding to these RFPs that um, talk about an international data data public utility for net zero. But that could play a role in, in in UN climate change. I think that's one example where this happens. I would love to see more. I think um, I think they're not they're not probably as used to to dealing with also the responses that they might have. You know, one thing is for Vera to issue an RFP, but think about UN Environment Program issuing an RFP, and suddenly they just have a lot of submissions, and they have a have the they don't have the the bandwidth to deal with the responses, let alone what happens afterwards. So I think that they have to, they have to figure out um, how to manage that. So uh, unless it's this very specific funded program for a specific thing, um, we don't see that level of process. But we, um, what we have seen, and we're part of that, is how UN can modernize their system, not from inside, but by partnering with consortium networks. So um, that's one of the things that, uh, for example, the UN Climate Global Innovation Hub that we're involved with, how do you set up, this is a three-sided marketplace helping cities meet their core human needs by matching them with innovators and finance, a very innovative thought for the UN, which the most important thing is that as long as they have political support for driving these uh, modern platforms, um, that's kind of like all you need. Then like partners like us and others can help them think about how to set that up set up a consortium that has an agreement with the UN and can bring in funding from outside and can fund a tech team that's working on that so that you don't have to put, you know, full stack engineers sitting in Bonn, Germany um, under the UN to to focus on that, right? So there's ways in which the, the innovation and the partnership of UN systems will help drive the modernization of their digital platforms. I, I think the amount of consensus building that you are... Um, you're kind of highlighting is for, for many 
of us, myself included, who kind of who come, tend to come from the entrepreneurial space, um, it's just a very it's a very different and interesting skill set, and so important uh, in terms of that playing that role across so many of those actors. Um, you know, helping to steward in what order should things be tackled, in, in what priority should things be tackled, in what direction should things be be tackled, um, to ultimately help us all. Uh, as a society, be better at uh, managing uh, these these trade offs that you mentioned are, are being made. So, um, thanks for sharing all that. It really, at least for me, is is very illuminating um, on the unique role that an organization like Open Earth um, plays in the kind of dance of global actors. Um, well, thanks, and and actually, that that that's one of the things that we're figuring out how to convey better and easier what we do because it's, it's it can be a little bit esoteric and very niche specific. So as a 501 through three, if you click donate, like what are you donating for? And I think ultimately we, we it, collaboration requires like digital public good support or public good support. And that's, that's often what we do, right? Collaboration, but, but, but from a subject matter expertise standpoint and, and the ability to do things. Well, let's talk about funding. So, you know, as I understand it, you all were able to secure a, quite a good deal of funding, um, you know, in sort of the, the, the heyday of the uh, NFT and and sort of Web3 uh, boom over the last few years. Um, you all took on some incredibly innovative ways of leveraging the interest in NFTs uh, to, to fund your organization. Um, I, I'm guessing that is not quite as as available to you in 2023 as it was in 2021. Um, but maybe share a bit about what you did in the past um, and then how you're thinking about uh, continuing to fund your operations going forward. Yeah, great. And that that is that was one of the first challenges setting up uh, Open Earth is how to how to fund it and having a first chat with philanthropies and seeing that there was it was it was a little bit harder to convey our message. Uh, even one technically disruptive family office that we came up with a project and they say, this is too innovative. And I'm like, oh my God, I thought this you're supposed to be risk capital. Um, and we were fortunate enough, one of our early uh, supporters um, who founded Social Alpha Foundation, which is a philanthropic crypto uh, organization, the head of that, Jahan, he was a um, former art dealers at Sotheby's. And he had the idea that, um, that well, was seeing that the NFT art space was booming. And as soon as he mentioned this, it resonated a lot to me. I, in my uh, free time, I do a lot of art. And and uh, and so art is a big part of, I think, what one way that I can connect. And I never thought about integrating art to to our work, but it, it resonated. And so we reached out and, and also thanks to, to him and Social Alpha Foundation to some of the top NFT artists. This was back in January. 2020. So um, in March, March 22nd, a month before Earth Day, we launched the Carbon Drop. We reached out to a couple of artists. Uh, definitely the one that made the huge uh, tabloid is Beeple. Beeple was such a supporter of this idea of let's use art to fund public infrastructure for climate change that's focused on TLTs, just like distributed ledger technologies can revolutionize art, can revolutionize art, can play a role in climate. So we suddenly found a great for, for, audience. For people who don't know Beeple, just to put it in context, like it was within a month of that time frame that Beeple sold an NFT for $69 million, um, <laughs> one single NFT, right? So like 
this this per individual human artist was the top of the top when it came to name recognition in the NFT space at the time. And still, it still is today. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and such an influencer in the in the space. So so I think it was in February where his piece sold for for that. And then we were like right up after that. Um, uh, but other amazing artists that that were part of that cohort and they're for us are primary philanthropists. And we every time that we have a win as an organization and at the annual report, we reach out to all these artists and say, you're the most important stakeholder that we've had from an individual standpoint. Um, so in one weekend, we auctioned eight pieces of digital art all around um, a climate theme um, using Nifty Gateway as the portal and and raised $6.6 million, of which uh, Beeple was was $6 million, um, uh, which all others also broke records. Rafik Anadol, amazing artist, truly amazing artist, also had his first NFT uh, art auction there, uh, Fuck Render, um, G-Monk, so, so many great artists that, that are still, you know, some of the top NFT artists in the space. And that was a great, unprecedented way for us to, to start and to, to set ourselves up to be able to do our work, which is expensive, right? You know, you, you, you know, this well, full stacks, <laughs> uh, engineers and, and having, having that on, on staff is, is not easy, but it's also what allows you to build, not just put out white papers. Um, so that really, really helped us a lot. And we were so inspired by it. And then we did another one, an ocean drop, uh, at the end of that year, in the context of the, um, Miami art Basel, and that helped us raise not as much as the previous one, but enough to set up our ocean program. Um, and so that, that's how we really got started really. Um, and help us, um, do a big push on our open climate engineering efforts. We set a small endowment. Um, there is exposure to the markets when you, when you do that. So it's not like 2022, it's great for us, but, um, but it also helps us focus on the fact that for the type of work that we do, we need institutional permanence. So we have to, we have to find a way to maintain the systems that we put out. Um, cause it doesn't, it doesn't work if you put out a great digital protocol, but you're off your, your bust and then it's 2030 and no one knows how to maintain it. Um, so what do we, that's a challenge, right? So how do we transition from, from that sort of like really one-off capital injection, um, to going forward? I think because of what we've done so far, it, 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 we've made a name to some of the philanthropic organizations that are often needing to support, uh, climate projects. Of course, we're a 501c3, so people can donate to us, but we realize that it's hard to get through the mainstream audience with our mission. And that's also why we're trying to think about how to explain what we do from the context of collaboration. But what we also find is the importance of creating uh, like multi-stakeholder consortiums and collaboratives or coalitions that we can lead so that it's not just us trying to fundraise, that, that other organizations that can implement things with us are also contributing to that. And where uh, donors are not alone funding a single you know risky idea, that they can find peers. And so you can create co-funding collaboratives with co-implementation collaboratives. So we're in the in the process of writing a concept note and, and a whole organization of how to get these supranational organizations, World Bank, UN Climate, UNDP, UNEP, that need a lot of the digital infrastructure implementation and the capacity building. Because let's remember that 
this is great. We're talking about cool tech, but the global south, as we say it in the climate space, doesn't necessarily have the capability to deal with, you know, new new technology. So you need to build tools to to get them on board. So there's a lot of need for that. And so having supernationals in one level, having co-funders come together and support projects, look at a pipeline of saying, yeah, this is this is high leverage point. I can fund this. Um, and then implementation partners, 501c3s like us, but also tech companies that can implement, right? And then think about those pre-competitive layers, right? So a common uh, reporting, routing protocol for greenhouse gas, SAS companies. Um, they all need to be part of that. So we work closely with Linux. They're really good at doing the member-based coalitions. We're not a member-based organization. Um, so that's, that's one of the big things that we're exploring. The other one is, of course, large grants. Um, from from tech firms or from other groups that that are particularly in the space of of, of climate tech uh, that that want to look at multi year projects. The other tier is EU Commission is really good at putting twenty thirty million dollar grants to consortiums. One of the areas that we want to be able to be better is to talk to major donors, individuals that have the ability to to do powerful exits through their tech firms and care about climate and care about how tech plays a role in climate from a social issue and from a collaboration issue, how we can get more to to them as well. And being a California organization, of course, that's a that's a natural area for us to 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 do better. So we're figuring out as we go in the adaptation. Uh, we could have come up with like a token at some point and we've looked a lot at uh, augmented bonding curves like the one example of how to fund digital public goods within the Web3 space. They're not quite there yet or set up our DAO. I've spent a lot of time thinking about these things. I think eventually there's a lot of opportunities for that, but um, not quite there in a way that we feel super comfortable saying this is this is, this is is great, right? So sometimes we fall back to traditional fundraising for nonprofits and then open to ideas. <laughs> well, on the notion of wild ideas, um, beyond the, the fundraising thing, what are what are... What are some of the wild ideas that you all are working on right now in general? Yeah, you know, the, there's certain patterns that we see that keep like after decades being uh, a deadlock. And in the climate space, the big one is the north-south divide. So the global south is always seen as uh, poor. They don't have funding. Their currencies are indebted. And so they're asking the money from the North. The North says no, but you admit it most of the time. This is the nature of these uh, negotiations and discussions in the climate space. And you realize, well, if we don't solve this, we have a problem. So that's one angle that I've, that I've noticed that we really need to innovate there. And the second one is we launched an ocean program to try to think about how do we help a government fund uh, a marine protected area? Because when we think about, let's say, carbon credits, we think about land or forest, and those are those are very open for the private sector. You could buy a piece of forest somewhere. You can you know engage it in a red project and sell your criminal credits to Microsoft if you want to, you know. And when they come alive, you can even do it as a natural asset company. But oceans are so much more complicated because this is economic exclusive areas. And through there, we started talking with the Costa Rican Central Bank, and they said, "Well, we've got central." bank environmental accounts and we don't really know what to do and so one thing that we've just uh published to peers and we'll be publishing more broadly in april is the concept of nature-based currencies um the other inspiration of that has actually been the klima dao uh, we, were, we were part of some of the early discussions of that 
because Klimadao created a first sort of like digital native environmental derivative, something that this token is tied to this digital treasury. And so I thought that was fascinating. And we are thinking about how does the global South uh, print the financial capital that they need for climate and conservation that's programmable towards those cost centers backed by or based on the natural capital that they have. And there's a lot of nuances to that. On one side, you've got central bank digital currencies, CBDCs, and a lot of governments are rolling out ideas for CBDCs. Some that leverage Web3, some that don't. Uh, but on the other side, you, you can't directly make nature a collateral if, that, that that is backing an instrument, some like gold, right? So when gold used to back the US dollar, that means that you could technically exchange, like there's enough gold there to back for your dollar. Um, you can't do that. You can't be like, give me my tree for my dollar. or And you also cannot do where under any default situation, I'll take your forest, right? Like that doesn't work and we'll just chop the lumber, sell it, and then we'll get the money back. So um, you have to do it in a way where what you value is the fact that the ecosystems that are backing the currency are valued because they're alive. And that, and then the thought process is that if your if your natural capital or your living capital is healthy and vibrant and there's biodiversity, then you have a strong currency and that currency is programmably designed to cover the cost of your park rangers and your surveillance and your enforcement and your MRV system and, and the restoration projects. Um, and, but if you chop it down, as we've seen the last four years with Brazil, then your national currency would go down. How do we create that mechanism? And how do we do it in a way where the South is not sort of tied to uh, monetary schemes in the North? The example on the North is um, the IMF, which is responsible for the SDRs, which are these special drawing rights, uh, printed $980 billion of SDRs in the context of COVID to help. Out of those 980, 250 went to global South countries. So you kind of have a printing machine that benefits the rich countries. So like, well, if you're going to come up with any rules of how to do that, why does the South, can, you know, I'm from Argentina, Latin America has a great potential to come together around bioregions like the Amazon or the Galapagos underwater mountain ranges or the Andes and say, well, this is wealth, this is value, and we need the currency for that. This is our right. And maybe we can not only scale nature for debt swaps, but find a way of studying this. This is out there as an idea. It's wild. But uh, we need to drive some of these thoughts because um, there's actually a lot of opportunity for digital infrastructure for that. If, if nature is the future gold, the way that you MRV the health of your nature becomes a very important thing, right? Um, and this is, this is delicate subjects because it's like, ah, you're financializing nature fully. So uh, we've immediately realized that like indigenous communities need to be part of this discussion and launched this initiative at COP with a lot of a coalition of indigenous nations. And uh, we had uh, in the audience, the Bank of International Settlements and uh, former central bankers. Having those discussions is, is important. And you, you know, you'd be surprised, Cody, Governments are saying this is very exciting. This is an interesting idea, and central bankers are saying this is this makes sense. From there to seeing a first nature-based CBDC, as we put out in the first white paper, I think will be uh, some time. But we but we want to be ones also at least one that stewards some of these thoughts. I mean, Martin, what 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 I'm loving from this whole conversation is I'm literally picturing these these 
very formal rooms you're sitting in uh, with central bankers and, you know, this, that and the other. And it's almost like you're pulling the hoods off the hackers, like in real time and, you know, like helping people come together and collaborate together, leveraging, you know, these very cutting edge new technologies to hopefully solve very important global collaboration problems. And um, that visual just sort of sits with me for some reason. Um where do you need help for people who are listening, you know, regardless of, of which of the various topics we've talked about, you know, help with, uh, you know, how to continue to fund your operations, um, whether it's help with um, the idea of the, uh, the 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 accounting layers that you're building or whether it's some of the you know future ideas that you're thinking about, such as uh, nature backed currencies. Um, where do you need help today? Thank you. Really, really appreciate that 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 question. And, and I love your visual as well. Um, I think the first way people can help is get informed, go to openearth.org, look at some of the programs. If there's feedback, uh, give feedback. Um, if you are a data engineer, if you're a coder, if you're a tech person, look at some of our open source projects, go to our GitHub. Open Climate is fully open. You can do pull requests. You can uh, look at our ocean program. We're publishing uh, Python data pipelines for how to create marine ecosystem credits. So you can collaborate in that way. If you are, uh, you realize that this is an important thing to fund, hopefully uh, there's a donate button you can donate. If you are uh, well endowed and you want to, you know, really support projects, I'd love to reach out. I'd love to talk to you more about some of the things that um, that we're doing and how to how to support, how you can support that. Um, if you run an organization that works in the space and you see that there's opportunities to collaborate around common infrastructure, we'd love to hear from you. Um, if you are great at marketing and communication and press um 501c3s like us need a lot of help get involved we we run a climate action data 2.0 community that meets every month um join our newsletter uh where we constantly put out channels uh or through that channel ways in which people can engage um we're we're hiring a, a tech lead for open climate so if you're a full stack with a lot of experience and had a lot of experience with large organizations. And now you want to make a difference. You can apply. Often we, last year we did a lot of hiring. So the other way is like, you know, get engaged and submit your CV. Uh, right now we have uh, that position. Um, and yeah, I think that that sort of covers like where people might come from and how everyone can, can collaborate in, in any way possible. Martine, I'm so glad we finally got to do this. Thanks for coming on, sharing what you're building with Open Earth Foundation, sharing more about your background and your motivations for doing it in the first place. Uh, and I can't wait to see what you all continue to innovate on as uh, time progresses. Thank you so much, Cody. An honor to be here and share this climate journey. And I know that everyone has so many great, great stories in this podcast. So I look forward to all the future ones and, uh, and see more ways in which we can also collaborate with MCJ. Thanks again for joining us on the My Climate Journey podcast. At MCJ Collective, we're all about powering collective innovation for climate solutions by breaking down silos and unleashing problem-solving capacity. To do this, we focus on three main pillars. Content, like this podcast and our weekly newsletter. Capital, to fund companies that are working to address climate change. And our member community to bring people together, as Yen described earlier. If you'd like to learn more about MCJ Collective, visit us at www.mcjcollective.com. And if you have guest suggestions, feel free to let us know on Twitter at MCJPod. Thanks, and see you next episode.